Beetlejuice. 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 It's showtime. And I better mention it, just that um, I saw the new Predator film, and mm. it's since we did that whole thing about Predator, which was basically me just talking about the Predator films as a capper to that by way of prologue. I could just jump straight in now, cold, mm. Jimmy, cold, just to say I really liked it. <clears throat> it's called Prey. Um, it's the director of Ten Cloverfield Lane. Uh, or road lane, um, the one with Goodman. thingy with John yeah. Goodman in the basement. So that's nice, um, and it's very good. Yeah, it's Apocalypto meets Predator. You know, it's Predator in Apocalypto, essentially, sort of. You know, um, and it's very good. I would say it's my second favorite sequel, um, straight off. And that's not really saying much. I mean, as we may or may not remember. The Rotten Tomatoes IMDb score was pretty woeful for some of them, one in particular, which I disagreed with. But I think this one is actually, yeah, I, for me, it's Predator, number one, obviously. Then it's Predators, because I was really shitty about it in my own mind for like 12 years. I feel I owe it to yeah, have the second. And then Prey, which I will watch again at some point and, you know, it will maybe be solidified, but it was very quality, Jimmy. Very quality. I liked it very much. And oh, I recommend I'm going to check that out. That that sounds like a treat. Yeah. Yes. No, it's 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 very nice. By the way, me and Marta have been watching um, Heartbreak High recently on Netflix because uh, this was the late '90s Australian, a bit edgy, and you know, a, a step up from Grange Hill. But, you know, but not, not crazy, but it was, you know, what I want to ask you, because it's brought to all these memories from back. I never watched it back in the day, but um, I did, of course, watch Neighbours. And so I want to say to you, Jimmy, as someone who, who's lived in those times for a while now, has anyone ever said to you, and do people ever still say, rack off? Or <laughs> is that, or dare I say, rack off dag? Has, have you ever heard that? I've never, ever, ever, ever heard Rakoff. I mean, of, of my Australian bingo, that might be the rarest square, Sheppy. I, I feel wow. like I get fair dinkums about once every six okay. months when I do a little fist pump to myself. Well, I'm that's very nice. happy with that. But do you have anyone say you're flaming galah? Because <laughs> I heard Alf Stewart say that, and it's uh, it's something on my list. I haven't been to any fish and tackle shops or the outskirts. No, with the green me. box. Don't do it. Don't do it. Um, Hey man, well that's that's wonderful. So I just wanted to mention that. Oh, and do people in Australia say football or soccer? Because in in they say they say uh, soccer because foot, footy means a whole different kettle of fish out here. But if they hear my voice, they'll immediately they always go so football, football, mate. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, that's so, you know, nice. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Well, that's <laughs> nice. I guess it's because yeah. Well, the association of America saying soccer when it's like yours isn't football. You, I mean, you do kick it, but it's really a lot of handball, surely. <laughs> so why call it football? Anyway, no. So that interested me as well, just by watching Heartbreak High, which is uh, amazing. 
and I'm sort of getting weird nostalgia even though I never watched it in the first place because it's so 90s I guess it's hardcore I watched um we watched Miss Miss Marvel um and it's like Kevin Smith said that's the new Marvel show with the young kid and it's like it somehow made me nostalgic for being a 13 year old girl it's really impressive Uh, so so I dig that so I so that's a little shout out to that as well, and that's sort of me oh. all caught up. <laughs> Lovely, Sheppy. Oh, one other thing. I said I was all up to date, but I'm not because there was one other thing I did. We watched um, over the weekend Dangerous Liaisons, the '88 Malkovich, Close, mm-hmm. Pfeiffer, Thurman, Keanu Reeves, same year as Bill and Ted, I, I guess. Um, Stephen Frears, um, fresh from. English, what's its face? The Varsity Davis thing, a very English scandal. So oh, that's nice. Good old Frears, that John Cusack film, Jack Black, um, Nick Hornby, you know, oh, yeah. we saw it together at the cinema, I think. Fidelity, high fidelity. Yeah, nice. High fidelity. So there you go. Stephen Frears saw that. Then today, watch Cruel Intentions. It's a real watching Emma and then watching Clueless wannabe. So, so that's nice. Um, oh. And I hadn't seen Cruel Intentions since the cinema, which I believe was 99. Peak Geller, peak Buffy Geller. Oh, um, goodness. And it was so Exploded. 90s. It was very, very, very 90s. And so that was enjoyable. And I had never watched the, you know, yeah, the original um, before. Uh, the original adaptation. I don't think there have been others. Maybe there have been loads. Um, but the Stephen Freer's 80s one, and I really liked it. I don't suppose you've ever seen it, have you, Jimmy? Oh, I haven't seen the Azons, I've seen Intentions. Yeah. Right, yeah, yeah, fair play. Um, yeah, do you remember? I mean, I can recommend. I can recommend. I only really mentioned it because it's that thing. It's like watching Othello and then watching O, for example. <laughs> It'd be the similar or watching. I don't know. What, yeah, I'm sure there must be a film of Taming of the Shrew out there somewhere. And you could do a 10 Things I Hate About You double bill. And there are loads, loads, mate. So <laughs> that's nice in any case. I'm not going to make a habit out of it, but that's nice. <laughs> that's cracking. I love Geller in that. I mean, God, in that movie, like certain people just are on fire, aren't they, at that point in their career? She really was. That's valid. It was so, I couldn't, I, I felt very uncomfortable. I don't know how I felt watching in the cinema, presumably with Dr. Mike. So I'm sure I was fine with that. Watching the other day, it's so like, well, you know, it's for the TV market, not, you know, but it was a bit like, oh, I feel like my mum's walked in and I am my mum. I was just like, oh, it's a bit, is it really necessary for this? So it was a bit like that. But um, it was, it's a, you know, I have to say, because Felipe has, you know, he's got the natural face. He's like Malkovich, and they've got the same voice as Malkovich and said, like, sort of soft, superior. Uh, but he's also, you know, he's got the face. He's, he's got the gunt face. So Felipe is very perfect for that role. And it's great. So I liked his performance actually quite a bit. Nice. So you can take your Geller. I'm all about the Ryan. Give me the Felipe any day, eh? Are you so I'm well up re- for it. Are you going to ask us to redo Star Wars, Sheppy, and have him as Anakin, and that's your prescription, and then we oh. just go again? Yeah, let's not open that can of worms. We've got a lot to get through today, young man. So, I well, good stuff, Jimmy. Get to do an intro, I guess. Let's, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, uh, look, welcome to Shoulder the Giants. I'm Jimmy, 
Hello, I'm Sheppy. I like how you said look just there. It was uh, stern. You're a bit like a, a Basil Fawlty headmaster, but of a clockwise teacher. Um, it was good. It was like, now look, enough of the horseplay. We've all had a laugh. Now let's get to it. Books open, page 36. Imperial War Museum. Uh, yeah, solid. Solid, Jimmy. Uh, you were saying? I... Welcome to Shoulders of Giants. Absolutely. By the way, hey, here's a thought. What is Shoulders of Giants, Jimmy? I'm so glad you asked me, Sheppy. Shoulders of Giants is the What If podcast for movie sequels, prequels, and all happiness. <laughs> and, uh... Wow. Gets gets better every week. I think yeah, by by episode two hundred, we're we're really going to have something. So it's solid, solid, Jimmy. Uh, and today, Sheppy, you you set us a, a challenge. But before we get to it, I just want to do a quick disclaimer for our lovely listeners. Um, just this is for all you listeners out there who are on auto download, or at least have this um, podcast set to auto download from iTunes. We had a snafu with our Rocky podcast and um it was originally uploaded at half the length half the tree half. i think that's been... like rocky three and a half and then it just stops halfway you would think imagine if that's all you thought rocky was rocky one rocky two half the first half of rocky three mickey's dead rocky's lost you go off and kill yourself so <laughs> no yes there was something happened to some of the downloads yeah um, and hopefully it's all fixed but yeah so the, it's the... all be if you have a little look and you fancy a bit of rocky four poddy have a look and if it's about an hour 50 then you want the money if this is an hour nine then it's lying to you and have nice. another go because yeah. the, the, the full one is out there yeah. box molder you always <laughs> say okay so good stuff jimmy what did you say what was the what ah. was the homework for this class Right, well, there you go. Yes, well, now look. Um, well, it's Beetlejuice. I, I, everyone knows it's Beetlejuice. So, yes, absolutely. Beetlejuice. I know, I, I interrupted my own drum or the guy picked up the, the, the stick and then put it back down again. Um, now, I, I mean, I think I explained it better. So you have to listen to the end of Rocky IV because I explained better why I chose it. But essentially, I think it was always on my mind um, as the song goes and I we did watch Beetlejuice but I think that was actually in preparation because I'd already set it so it just seemed like a good a good thing it's from our childhood and I know we did watch it together but I wouldn't necessarily classify it as an us film is that safe to say we never really safe. quoted it all the time or anything like that yeah I think that's safe Sheppy for sure yeah um but 1988 Tim Burton Alec Baldwin, Gina Davis, Michael Keaton, of course, as the titular, and um, and, and other people. Uh, Lothar, I don't know what the actor's name is, but he plays exactly the same character in Demolition Man. And for years, I, well, not for years, but when the poster for Goodfellas first came out, I thought that Ray Liotta was Lothar from Beetlejuice. I thought, oh, what's he doing in a gangster film with De Niro? So there you go. Um, what's your take on Beetlejuice, Jimmy. Um, do you remember the first time you saw it? Right? So, yeah, look, I, I do remember the first time I saw it. I think it was one of the very first VHS videos I saved up for on my paper round, I want to say. It was certainly an early purchase, yeah. Um, and um, I remember loving it, 
but then kind of abandoning it really i want to say for the last 25 30 years hadn't really revisited for a long long time and uh look in terms of originals i, I really remember enjoying it um i was in love with winona Ryder at the time i just had the yeah. biggest crush on her nowadays rewatching it i think i texted you didn't i and said actually <laughs> probably got a little bit more of a, a twinkle in the eye for catherine there uh, oh, no, this uh this not catherine Hahn, sorry um catherine o'hara thank you <laughs> catherine O'Hara. oh you want to get her name right when you meet her jimmy that can be a <laughs> catastrophe you're one shot but uh yeah she's um she's fantastic isn't she she just yes th- i think between this and your shit's creek and uh, yes. i have one other in mind to say to you as well but i just wondered whether there's kind of that specific character she's so good at playing which that's sort of new york yuppie who's lofty a bit of a snob, yeah and she that could be the same character maybe yeah it could be more yeah more uh, yeah more. well uh, very very quickly about Catherine O'Hara, it's interesting because you know, for years I would watch Beetlejuice and you know, and I didn't even think, oh, there's Kevin's mum from Home Alone. I always liked her, but it was only much later, much later really, that it should have been. I really got into the Christopher Guests and I'd seen Spinal Tap, but I watched all of the, you know, like Best in Show, um, Ran a Mighty Wind, Waiting for Him, all of those. And she's in those and she's amazing. And then when she pops up in films and other TV things, it's like, oh, that's nice. But then it was sort of around that time. In fact, uh, we watched a lot of these Christopher Guest films a few years ago because we got really into Shit's Creek. And that TV show, like, really was like, oh, that's really hit a sort of like a nerve or something in a good way. It really resonated with me and I really liked it um, deeply. Like with Bojack Horseman, um, I really, really liked the characters in Shit's Creek, I liked the story and I liked the tone. Um, and so she's amazing in that. And so with all of that in mind and all of the quiz for guests, then go back and watch Beetlejuice and see her looking young, beautiful and radiant, then yes, I'm totally Tino O'Hara as well. I mean, yeah, great for Winona, absolutely look, looking lovely. But yeah, no, yeah, Kathy H for life. Put the O wherever you like. So, um, yes. So what was your first watch then, Sheppy? Did we get that from... I I don't remember specifically. I think it was with you. I seem to remember it was your video and we did watch it at your place. And and I remember the prawn hand grabbing the the faces (laughs) um, and jumping. And I jumped this time as well when it happened. Um, So so that's nice. but I didn't, you know, I liked it and I saw it again over the years and I saw it, you know, it's, it's never been, I guess I probably didn't see it that much in the 90s, um, but then I did watch it, you know, not infrequently. This was the second time Marshall and I had seen it. Um, but it is, always, it does always surprise me. It is always better. That, and I, I mean, I shouldn't be surprised, but it's always better than I think it's going to be. It's really, really good. Yeah. Um, I, I've so, got to say this for the record, like, I'm so, I, I, I'm like 11 out of 10 happiness right now that you jumped at the yeah. prawny, like, I've just got to say that right now, because, <laughs> is, you know, I will approach this new uh, Predators movie, like, uh, what was it called again at the top end? Prey. 
Prey, that was it. Yeah, I have seen it around. But anyway, I will approach Prey and I'll be terrified. I will I will be terrified. And I know you probably sat through that just like just loving it, <laughs> but like basically without flinching. And, uh, and I will be cowering and behind my cushion and all the rest of it, and you know, behind the dog probably as well, you know, everything. And then and then you know, just I didn't jump at the broadies on this rewatch. I'm so proud. And I might, well, I might done, you see. imagine the post or something, but yeah. <laughs> Well, I can't dispute any of that. I mean, for, for the listeners, what um, Jimmy was nodding sagely while stroking his chin as depicting me watching Prey. I don't know if I was stroking my chin. Uh, I might have been like flicking a, a random lock from my ear. Um, but no, I, I don't remember jumping, but I did. I, hey, I don't mind. I will gladly say that I jumped with the pawns and I enjoyed the jump. Uh, so I had my own crushed tarantula going on. So this time out, Jimmy, so it's safe to say this was the first time you had seen it in, in quite some time. Yeah, loads. I'll be honest, to the point, Shebby, how about this retreat? Or well, you we we know how good it is, and this the uh, you know, genuinely worth the rewatch if you wanted to pause now and go back. It's a very short movie as well. It's very mm-hmm. easy to jump in and out of. But I genuinely thought for some reason I just had in the back of my mind the prawnies, the dinner table was the end of the movie you know i mean uh, obviously i knew what was left if you know what i mean but just in my mind as a you know yes as, as approaching you it, associated imagined it. that to be the culmination and the final set piece sort of thing you know and um and and so then i had this sort of extra 30 minutes of treat you know <laughs> and it was just really happy it made me very happy you know to, to, to do that and, and um yeah i just i sort of thought yes yeah, it's, it's it's sort of uh there's so much to love about it. Even just the very beginning, I love. I really dig the um, relationship of uh, Gina Davis and Alec Baldwin in this. So yeah, it's very cheesy really, and over the top, but it's are. tragic. Yeah, I, I, I'm so sorry to interrupt, but just the beginning when they're driving and I know that they're going to go off the bridge and they're going to die. I was willing them not to do it. Just watch out for the dog. Watch out for the dog. And I really, I was uncomfortable with them in the paint store getting all the stuff. Uh, mm. Yeah, it was like knowing this thing was going to happen, I couldn't stop it. It was horrible. It's really tough. <laughs> and, uh, but then their reaction to death is sort of so, you know, it's wonderful how matter-of-fact yeah. they are about it. And um, and the whole movie, <clears throat> the tone of it is really interesting. Like, it's just kind of got so many little little rules and little things that are just pure the imagination you know of, of Burton yeah. and others you know, just wonderful and I like just it's just it's just great it's really it's a really great little movie I'm very nervous about um the the real sequel that is I yeah. think been confirmed now Sheppy so right. I think um so I'm glad we've got in under the wire yeah and Keaton's performance we can probably just maybe touch on that too because it's really it's something else, isn't it? There's no, it's almost yeah. one of those where I'm sure there was a moment where I was like, what that I probably saw Batman first or something and went back to people or whatever. And it was like, what that guy's Batman? It's ridiculous. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. And I think um he's he's so full of energy and asides, and there's a million things going on with his eyebrows, his head, his everything, you know, and it's got kind of it really reminded me of sort of Robin Williams is probably the only other person that could have even had a had a sniff at pulling off this maybe Jim Carrey 10 years later but like you know it's kind of like there's a real Aladdin genie energy to here and it predates that by several years I just thought it was really interesting you know 
to speak to that, you've got the genie and you've got, um, what was the other example you said about the thing? Jim Carrey, but just- uh, Jim Carrey has yeah. the mask, of course. So oh, you've yeah, got yeah. Williams with the genie and Carrey with the mask, and they are both there. They both have these massive elements. What I think with Beetlejuice more than the other two, and there is a danger, especially to the mask, a little bit of a danger to be around him too close to get yourself hurt, I've always felt. Whereas the genie, you're always safe. Whereas on the other end of the spectrum, Beetlejuice, you will get fucked up. And he's very dangerous to be around. And he is like the genie, but he's, he's very dangerous to be around. Um, and, and of course, he is willfully selfish and out for himself and outwardly aggressive. You know, he's not, he's not, <laughs> he's not a nice guy. I don't know so, how they're going to navigate that, Sheppy, in the new world. I don't know how they'll navigate. Like, there's, there's gags in there that just, um, you know, rightly or wrongly, would not be in the movie today, you know? Well, uh, if I may say, I mean, I, well, let, let, let's talk about that, because it's a valid point. I mean, what, what points would you say would be tricky today? It's just the looking up Gina Davis's skirt and stuff. Oh, the classics. And the hitting on Winona. <laughs> hitting on Winona very heavily when she's probably underage in this. I don't know, I would have thought, but um, yeah. I well, uh, Lemony Snicket and, um, had Jim Carrey marrying like a, like a 12 or 13 or 14 year old oh, girl. Wow. And that was a children's film more recent than this. But again, it's all very specific. Certain children's films you can really get away with a lot. And I'm not even, and Beetlejuice isn't even a children's film. So, yeah. you know, there is recent or semi recent precedent. But you're right, it's very dark and twisted, and it was a miracle it got made in the first place. I think Burton has enough clout that he can make the sequel however he wanted. Frankly, any time after Batman, he could have done it. Um, and obviously, you know, that would have been interesting a 90s Burton sequel to. Beetlejuice. And I'm going to quickly say, when I did watch the film, I already had an idea what my plot was going to be. And this is a tiny spoiler. When I was watching the film, I really thought, I really kind of want to see a direct scene. I want to see more of uh, Adam and Barbara. I want to see more of Alec and, and Gina um, and see their further adventures. And if they come across Beetlejuice again, which they will, but it's in a different set of circumstances. And I kind of wanted to see that, but that's not what mine is, as it turns out. Oh, wow. But that would be something, I know, but that would be something that I would be, I would want to see. Well, I've um, done that, Shepard. I've done that, well, I've done that. Yeah, I, I went there. I wondered whether this might be one where we had gone a little bit closer to one another, but um, yeah, it that's interesting. That we, yeah, that's, that's great. That's so cool. That's no, it makes me happy. I also, I wanted to mention earlier as well that, um, when you said you like their non-reactions to these crazy things, and it takes me back to you said, yeah, it's like uh, Flash Gordon, and it's the same shit, where they see some crazy fucking shit, and you just have to keep moving, going, <laughs> just to get the one step, one foot after the other. I think it reaches um, its apex I... with the face pulling, right? And then it's just like, <laughs> yeah, pretty good, darling. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> I really like Gina Davis's performance as well. I mean, she's sitting next to the tiny shriveled head and it's looking at her and she looks at it. Uh, it's yeah, very good. It's amazing. And even like 
some of the, the I was thinking that like Davis's thing with the crazy yappy open mouth. I mean, <laughs> say that. I'm, I'm in love with Gina Davis as well. I've got three people I'm in love with in this movie, um, and um, and and the receptionist, by the way, at Judo's place. I'm in love with her too, <laughs> and probably Judo herself. I'm in love with every female character. But anyway, the, um, the uh, her her mouth being like wide open like that, and all this, and her eyeballs being on her tongue or whatever, like. I don't I, this sounds like a ridiculous thing to say there's some Gina Davis energy in that prosthetic like there's just there's yes. something about her character and the way she's interpreted it in that crazy face I can't describe yes. it but it's something there's this really... sort of buzzing I assume it's her under there um, because it does convey and also she does have these sort of boggly eyes which she uses very well all the way through the film so when she does just have these eyeballs in the big massive crocodile mouth it does look like her um, so there's that as well but yeah no I would be very surprised if it wasn't Gina under that weird thing with the mask because yes you're absolutely right gorgeous and good for Alec Baldwin because it, you, I, again I just always forget he's in it and he's you know top build he's the male lead yeah. um, and it's a very good performance but I guess that's it it's, he has to play the straight guy even Gina Davis is reacting more he's really his role is to play it exactly how he plays it. And I guess it's like you say, he was on a oh, podcast. That, uh, yeah, yeah, with Rob Lowe, and he was saying he was so gutted, he had to stick in that black and white check shirt. With all the <laughs> like, yeah. Everyone else is wearing You'll really You'll be wearing it in my outfit. movie as well, by the way. <laughs> yeah. It's <laughs> a non-negotiable. I can't wait for that. I'm so glad you, you did that, because that's what I want to see. <laughs> I want to see that. Um, Wonderful, very imaginative film, clearly. Very good. Um, I don't know if Flicks magazine or, um, was lying to me, but it was one of those magazines which said, just after Batman came out, like Nicholson had seen Beetlejuice and I quote, loved it, and that got him interested in working with Burke for Batman. So so there you go. So that's a little memory of the time, which, you know, take, nice. take that, as you will. Um, so Beetlejuice, you like? Was there anything specific? I mean, it's got Jeffrey Jones, and that can be problematic, but it has to be mentioned in that he does play one of our favourite cinematic characters, Rubio Ed Rooney, yeah. and he's very good in the film. And he acted with Baldwin a few years later in very different circumstances in The Hunt for Red October, yeah, for like man. a scene. So there you go. That's nice. Um, everyone's great. Winona, and of course, coming out of a lot of Stranger Things recently, seeing pure young Winona being at the peak, Winona, goth chick, all of that, uh, wonderful. I really should rewatch Edward Scissorhands because I haven't seen that for such a long time, basically so long I haven't seen the film. Uh, I, I need to, I need to rewatch that big time. Um, so see, yeah, so good old young Winona. Um, yes, all of that. You're touching on something here, though, Chef, that I definitely wanted to just bring up, which is just that they are catching so many people in their absolute pomp, right? Or, or at the very beginning of it. Yes. You know, like, yes. They're just on these crazy runs, these people. Baldwin, like you say, he's about to go. So he, this, I just want to give you, I did some IMDb's just so I can give you the quick runs. Well, please. So this is Baldwin, 1988 to 93. 1988, she's having a baby. Well, can I say, oh, okay, thank you, because I really wanted to double check, was she's having a baby uh, in 88, so yeah, that's so, good yeah, to know. It's like five movies in 88. She's having a baby, Beetlejuice, married to the mob, working girl, and talk radio. 
did anyone have wow. a more busy 1987? I don't know. But anyway, <laughs> wow. 89 is Great Balls of Fire. 90 is Hunt for Red October. Um, 90 is also Miami Blues, Alice. 91, The Marrying Man. I've actually saw that. Prelude to a Kiss in 92. Uh, oh, with Gary Glenn Ross in 92. Well, there you Alice go. in 93. I mean, come That's on. Well, oh, you missed The Shadow. When was The Shadow? Oh, I don't know. Maybe that was 94. Yeah, maybe. And Gina he Davis. must have been gutted. Well, good for Gina Davis as well. I'm just saying about Alec Baldwin, he must have been gutted. Like, he worked with Tim Burton. He's like, I'm clearly the most perfect Batman on the perfect age. Yeah. And he goes, Beetlejuice actor, going to play Batman. Baldwin's, like, dusting off his shirt. And it's like, Keaton, I'm lost. Uh, so, yeah, he must have been absolutely livid. Gave it a stab with the shadow. Good for him. And, of course, 30 Rock, a uh, huge fan of that show. He's amazing in it. So, so good. But Alec Baldwin, just don't get shocked to him. Don't get shot oh, by him. Crikey. Um, can I ask Awkward, you but... <laughs> can I ask you something quickly? Just, do you remember Michael Keaton being in She's Having a Baby? Apparently he is. No. Interesting. Yeah. That is interesting. I mean, we One know... One other thing I want to say about Michael Keaton is, at the time, everyone was like, what the fuck, because of Beetlejuice and because he was in lots of comedies in the 80s and he was in Mr. Mom. And he was in Night Shift and, and other things. And he often played these wacky characters. And then when he was announced as Batman, if the internet had have existed, the world would have exploded. So it's lucky that it didn't exist yet. But even without the internet, everyone was going nuts. I was totally oblivious. And I, I don't know if we had watched Beetlejuice. But even if we had, but I don't think so. Certainly watching Batman with you in 89 in Guildford Cinema, it was like that was my introduction to Michael Keaton as Batman, so yeah. that was never a problem, and we still like Batman clearly. So, yeah. so that's nice. Yeah, if anything, Beetlejuice is the shock, isn't it? Like you're like, oh yeah, 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 yeah totally. I think I was very satisfied. I want to say Mr. Mum might have been my intro to him, Sheffy, for some reason. But anyway, interesting. <laughs> I've never seen Mr. Mum. Um, oh. I know. Am I missing out? Should I say it? I, I just it never really was something I was ever tempted to see. Give me Pacific Heights any day <laughs> during that sleeping with the enemy, uh, single white female, unlawful entry. There were more. Yeah. <laughs> the early 90s. Oh, had the box of cradle. Those early 90s kind of like, yeah, sort of. I love those vibes. The family. Love it. Love it. Um, was there anything else about Beetlejuice? I'm sure there's a million things. Oh, yeah, one yeah. thing I did want to mention, which I'd never noticed before, um, it's kind of obvious, sort of, it's sort of subtly done. Baldwin, Adam, almost really very, very early, once they're dead, uh, almost summons Beetlejuice. He says, Beetlejuice, and then really smoothly, without it being obvious, he says, Beetlejuice, into the next conversation. And then he's like, Beetle, and then he trails off because Barbara says something, and it's, it's subtle, and maybe everyone is like, duh, it's really not subtle. But um, I noticed it for the first time, and I liked it, so I wanted to mention Nice. That was cricket. I, I just, um, I, I love that there were so many little throwaway moments, like I think towards the end they referenced the fact that the old supply stores closed in town, and you wonder whether, you know, he was their, oh. their biggest customer, sort of thing, therefore. Yeah. <laughs> you know, little things like that are just wonderful, and it does some really clever world-building 
you know, in motion, if you know what I mean. They're never expositioning it too heavily. You know, I mean, I know they've got a book of the deceased and all this, you know, there's all that stuff, but you know, they're 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 kind of you're going on the journey with the two of them and it's 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 I just think it's great. Really, really enjoyable rewatching. I'm very happy that you suggested it's this. It's such a nice well, thank you. You mentioned Babs and Adam being an excellent couple and this wonderful energy, and it's true, and they've got this kind of newlywed honeymoon sort of energy, like before they die, and like they're pulling each other onto the sofa and being really playful. And then she, I, I assume Adam can't drive because he needs her to drive him down, and I really associate that very much. So, yeah, they're like, I need to ride down to the store, and she drives him down. And when they're sort of like running down the stairs together, and they have this kind of like childlike energy, and they're like running, really playing cute. together, and it's really, really nice. And it makes again, it just adds to the like, oh, beautiful kids, you've got your whole life ahead of you. Agreed. And they've obviously had some fertility problems of some sort. There's been something there, but the tr the, yeah. the trope there is to make the couple really miserable around that you know what I mean and to be like oh come on it's that time I'm and my eggs are ready or whatever like that kind of stupidity you know and it's like okay the time is off we've got to have sex but there's just you're right it's just there's just a, a happy energy around them and it's a quesara sara sort of vibe to the the fertility problem if you like you know it's nice man. yeah they're never in denial um about being yeah. dead which is nice so you don't yeah. have to go through that um yeah no, it's it's very nice and I like them and you see the dog right before he even goes into the store. You see the same dog, and you're like, "Oh, watch out for that fucker!" Um, <laughs> uh, you know, it's not it's not the dog's fault really, just the dog. But you know, he does kind of double kill them, <laughs> so it's like gutted. Um, but no, it's a wonderful film. Um, all of the characters are great. Renaudot is great. Uh, the family is hideous, and some more than others. And Catherine O'Hara is amazing. Lothar does annoy me. Um, and I don't ever really feel he gets sufficient comeuppance, but... No, it's um, a beat as well. It's like when he loses his clothes at the end, it's like, yeah. then he's in a blue suit or something. It's like... It's, it's, a, it's an ugly suit, which you would never be seen dead in. And, and I guess it's the joke is, it's his worst possible thing that could ever happen. Yeah. And if you take it like that, because Beatles knows the worst thing he could possibly do, and out of all the crazy shit that we know he could do, that is, and if we assume that's 100% true, then I guess he did get the comeuppance, it just seems ridiculous to these guys. But in that case, let's assume he went utterly insane and he just ran in front of a truck or something, because Lothar is despicable, actually. <laughs> so, He's got the uh, ultimate nose face. <laughs> now, before we get to the pictures, Shepard, I'm very excited about yours, particularly because I have no idea where you've gone with it or how far into the future or past um, you've gone. The um, uh, I just wanted to ask you sort of where it sits on your Bertonometer. Right, good stuff. Yes, I think we've established well. First of all, let me quick, quick shout out. This is our second Burton for the podcast. So mm. hooray, gone for a Burton. So that's nice. <laughs> uh, yeah. it's a, we've had a couple of repeats. Cruz is a double timer, a double tapper. Um, <laughs> so yeah, okay. Arnie is a double, a double fister. So it's all solid. <laughs> <laughs> I had a story with that Arnie farted in the face of Miriam Margulies on the set of <laughs> um, the, the, the devil film with Gabriel Byrne. End of days. Um, they're, they're in the fifth, they're having a fight um, in the film because she's super devil strong. And um, apparently she's on her back in the film 
and uh, Ardy just like turns around and farts in her face. It's like, oh, ha, ha. And she's like, I never forgave him for that. I never forgave him. She did like an interview, like in Newsweek or something years later <laughs> and, and dropped that. So there you go. There's a quick Arnie aside. Amazing. Amazing. Good, good oh, to no, know that he has that yeah. <laughs> as well. <laughs> it's astonishing. It makes you really laugh. So, so that's, that's, that's nice. So good old Burton. Yes. Uh, my Bertometer, it has been established before, I think, that it's really 20th century and 21st century, with one exception in Big Fish. And I like everything to different degrees. I like his Winnie Wonka film. It's not as good, obviously, as, as the other one, but it's I like it. I like, actually, controversially, I, I, I like. Yeah, I mean, I haven't, I saw it in the cinema. And I liked Alice in Wonderland. Oh my I saw it in the cinema. Ah, yeah, I know that you, I know you really have a blast. I will say, this is like a Brett Goldstein. Where were you when you had a meaningful experience with some film? Uh, it was a very nice day and I was on a date. Um, and, and it was, I was having, a, it was summer. And then we went to see this film and I was happy. So I, and I, so I never had a problem with it. Um, I don't think I've seen it since, but I won't apologize for my liking it. Maybe if I did see it again, I would hate it. But um, it caught me in a moment. But maybe I would like it if I saw it again. Either way, all of that's fine. I really like Sweeney Todd, and I always forget that exists. That's actually quite high up there. I like that musical anyway, um, and I like that film, and I like everyone in it and everything. So that these so Big Fish and Sweeney Todd. I like um, what's its face, um, Headless Horseman film. Oh, yeah, Sleepy Hollow. Uh, Sleepy yeah. Hollow. Yeah, I like one. that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he gets his head chopped off. Most people do in that film. I like that film. That trailer to Sleepy Hollow lied to me because you see him, you see Depp fighting, having a sword fight with the head of the swordsman. And the horseman's got two swords and they're having a sword fight. That's in the film, but like for one second, and the joke is, it's not even a joke, it's, just, it's not a proper sword fight, he gets his ass kicked. Uh, but you see that, and then you see the windmill explode, and it really looked like an action film. And it, it's not an action film, so I went into that with you know, bad expectations. But seeing it now, um, I really like it. And it was filmed like in Newhurst and shit. So there you go. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> so I like that. So that's another little shout out. Um, Beetlejuice is way up there. Um, my my, my favourite Burton's will always by necessity and just like a time and a place thing, but also I do genuinely like them and I can see flaws, but I just like them and they're also just fused, so it's a sort of unfair, but the Batmans, so they're up there, Batman and Batman Returns, and if I had to say which one of those two I preferred, I would say Batman Returns, sort of more even for me personally, um, so that's nice, so it would be Batman Returns, Batman, Edward, but you know what, Ed Wood, in my, and I think I've said this before, Ed Wood is what I genuinely believe to be the best film. Um, it's, it's so special, but I'm going to have to say on a personal level, because Batman has the advantage in the, you know, both of those, I'm actually going to say my third favourite is Mars Attacks, and then it's going to be Ed Wood. So those are my, is that four? Yeah. Um, Batman Returns, Batman, Mars Attacks, Ed Wood. And if I'm going to round it up to five, then Beetlejuice. Nice ships. I like that. I, I think my only swap out might be Mars for Big Fish. Like oh, nice. Mars yes. Six, maybe. But yeah. Yeah, no, I love it. 
big fan of Burt's, but yeah, as as you said, like Alice for me did not do the mustard. It really it so it, it lost me to the point of me being a bit angry about it. Like you know, and and it feels so churlish and ridiculous to say that because the effort clearly that went into that movie is monumental, and the imagination, yeah. yes, monumental. He's a super talented guy, Tim Burton, off the charts. He's amazing. I'm in awe of him. But I don't know why. For me, it just didn't chime and almost felt lazy it, in a ridiculous way. You know, like it just felt like, oh, okay. Well, I think you can categorize Tim Burton films in two categories: um, really, really Tim Burtony, and sort of not. Like Big Fish doesn't, you know, because it's all sunny, so it, does, it still has the circus freak and all that element, but it doesn't feel like a quote-unquote Tim Burton. Um, and the same, I guess, with Big Eyes, and there are other things. But then on the other hand, you've got Willy Wonka, and you've got uh, Dark Shadows, is that the thing? Um, and you've got uh, Alice in Wonderland, and you've got and Miss Pedigree's thing, thingy, thingy, that one, with Eva Green. Um, ones which are just so Tim Burton-y, it's like they've already taken too many Tim Burton pills, and then Tim Burton makes it, you're like, wow. Um, and you can, sometimes that can be too much, sometimes it can hit the wrong notes. I will say one film that doesn't necessarily feel like a quote-unquote Tim Burton film that I haven't seen at the cinema, I can't imagine I'll ever see again, is his Planet of the Apes film that I was up for. I was like, okay. I wasn't a massive fan of Marky Mark, but I was like, okay, I'll go for it. Uh, Tim Burton, all right. I started even getting a little bit excited, knowing that it would be like nothing like the original. It totally was sort of, oh, okay, what are they going to do? And it, it was so bad. I was doing a Jimmy a bit uh, early and just, I was fuming. I was very conscious of not liking that film almost from the off. There was no Beverly Hills Cop 3 halfway down Guildford High Street Eureka revelation. <laughs> it was pretty much immediate, like, oh, something's off. And then very quickly, like, oh, what a waste of amazing makeup and special effect. Bam. Well, let's. Let's stand on the shoulder of that giant man, uh, Sheppy, because we do love him on balance. And I always yes. gonna ask a question or on that. I was gonna ask what your order was. Oh no, I, I think I said it anyway. Just I reckon same as yours. But oh, just I'm that, sorry, um, you're just swapping them out, Swappy. of course. Yes. Are you um, what do you think about Mars Attacks? Are you not a massive I, really like I just haven't seen it since the cinema, right? I just um I, I you know, whenever I think of it, I just think of Michael J. Fox's hand. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, um, as well, you should. <laughs> he's got so many cool. I love it when he's got lots of cool, dark flourishes like that. It's really brilliant. Um, yes, I'm a big fan of that film, and I know a lot of people not keen, but I I love Master Tanks. Yeah. Nice to have some Tom Jones in there. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Full on. Were there any other so Big Fish, and that's an amazing film as well. Not a big fan of Alice. What did you make to his Willy Wonka, his Charlie and the Chocolate Factory? I actually seem to remember quite enjoying that, Shepard. It was pretty good. I thought Depp had a pretty decent stab at Willy Wonka. He looked more like the Willy Wonka that I imagined, Depp. I know, obviously, I guess the illustrations and the, that classic version of Charlie and Chocolate Factory, that's kind of what they would have based him on. But, you know, I never imagined Willy Wonka to look like Gene Wilder. When I think of Willy Wonka, I think of the look of that Johnny Depp character. And, uh, yeah. When I when I think of Willy Wonka from the illustration, who I assume is Quentin Blake, I I'm sure he had like a little beard, 
In fact, I'm sure, I don't know, but maybe I'm wrong, but I like to goatee. I envision him a bit like Ebenezer Scrooge. Well, no, actually more like Charles Dickens. You know, I mean? and so that's how I see him in my mind, a little bit like Charles Dickens, yeah. Nice. <laughs> I'm so excited about the pitches. I'm so excited. So I want to. I want to hear yours. I can't wait. I've been, I've just right, like giddy. So let's talk. Do you want to do the um the trailer quote at the beginning? Uh, we yeah we yeah why not? I haven't actually got one prepped. So um, do you have one ready? I do. I can just shout it out because I I I, I did it. Um, this is um so yeah a little bit from the trailer, like in the middle of the trailer, uh, Beetlejuice talking to a, a character um, and he says to her, oh sure, life, 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 life sure can be fun and all, but dying, deceasing, being uh, dead, now that's worth living for. And that's the uh, that's Nice, Jeffy. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> I haven't written that much dialogue in this film, if any, so that's, I, I, I wanted to do that because I've it's probably good because I don't have to, that will damage my throat, but that was a hard voice. But yeah, this is relatively light on, on scene dialogue, I believe. Well, I've just done, um, I've got to be honest with you, I've done the same as you. Very, I've only literally, I've only got one Beetlejuice gag moment, you know what I mean, of zipping around and trying to attempt that. So, But I don't want to play it at this point. So yeah, yeah. Well, well, that's okay. If you, no. that's, if you, but, but let me make something up because I didn't have anything right. I had a nod and a homage to the original dinner scene. And I just had put in my thing, um, of course, the dinner turns to chaos with Beatlesque behaviors is kind of what I put as the line. But let's assume yeah. my little trailer moment to you is the jumpiest of all jumps that would make even, you know, old Sheppy shriek and jump out of his seat <laughs> with an even bigger prawny face going out and like grabbing people. <laughs> so let's just assume that happens as, as double homage in that moment when it gets to it. So that's- Oh, I love thing. it. Well, that's nice. That's that could be, be the sting. sting. <gasps> yeah. Little pinky over the air. <laughs> <laughs> um, I jump quite often. Um, I'm not. I'm. I'm very happy to admit. I jump often uh, in I films. I don't remember things. you jumping when we were growing up. I remember being the the big scaredy cat in all <laughs> uh, in all the movies. But, uh... <laughs> um, sometimes I don't, but um, but it, but it's not uncommon for a, a Sheppy jump. Yes. I'm so excited, Sheps. I'm so glad. Excited. So, I, just give it all to me. Give it all to me. I'm Rogel. All right. <laughs> well. I will also say that most of the time I do like direct sequels, like sequels that are a year or you know, two or three years after the first one. Very rare that I take an old film and do like a sequel now. Um, this, but I'm, I'm saying that this film, which I'm just calling Beetlejuice 2, um, I'm saying it's actually, yeah, it's like 2022, just because it, it doesn't really make a difference. So why not? No. So make of that we will, and that obviously reflects on the cast. But this film could be made any time after 1988 uh, with any cast that is age appropriate. But I've got um, so this is Beetlejuice two, um, 2022, directed by Tim Burton, uh, starring Florence Pugh, oh. uh, Phil Dunster, who is Jamie Tart from Ted Lasso. Oh no, um, with. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, it was going to be um, Thingy from, um, from Cobra Kai, 
uh, but he was too young. So, so it's Bill Dunstan instead. Um, with uh, Eva Green returning to Burton for I think her third film now with Burton, and Michael Keaton, of course, with Winona Ryder, Jesus Davis, Alec Baldwin, and the voice of Johnny Depp. Um, so it's straight wow. away, it's a, it's a real departure. It's not the continuing adventures. Um, the, the Winona Ryder and everything is, uh, they're, they're cameos. Nah, they're, they're, glor- they're, they're extended cameos, um, but they're not who the story centers around. The story centers around Florence Pugh, um, a 20-ish year old girl called Hetty. Um, we open in the city. By the way, Jimmy, quick disclaimer, I've done a bit of a you wannabe in that I've really packed, like the first 10 minutes is like solid. Um, and it's edited, this is always my excuse, but it's edited to an inch of its life with credits going over the top. There's a lot that happens in supposedly the first 10 minutes of the film, but it's like the TARDIS. If there's enough room, it's okay. Um, but it's very top heavy. There's not that. Anyway, we meet our hero, uh, Hetty, uh, who it's um, New York or Chicago, somewhere like that. It's nighttime. She's working at a busy cafe. Uh, we meet her and her co worker, Shauna, who's like a semi friend. Um, they're finishing work, and her friend is trying to set her up on a blind date. And Shauna, who could be played by someone, it's not a very large role, but she not a small, it's not an inconsiderate role. Um, Shauna could be played by someone. She asks, seriously, Hetty, what else have you got on, you know, what else have you got to do tonight? And Hetty gives like a non-committal answer and an ambiguous look. Uh, So we follow Hetty home to her cramped apartment and it's, you know, classic. It's really, really small. There's a huge buzzing flashing neon sign across the street, which, you know, invades through the window with red and then green red and green washing through the cramped space. It's like just a bed and a small gas heater. Um, there's a, a green stick insect who's living uh, on Hetty's wall in this tiny apartment uh, who she calls Mr. Abraham, who she talks to. And it's this little stick insect who's like, well, you know, it's like uh, Selena Carl talking to Miss Kitty. Um, and that's how we find through uh, speedy and seamless exposition uh, which would also be stuff with Shauna at the cafe, uh, but also talking with Mr. Abraham, stick insect, and maybe also through that classic trope of answer phone messages, just to really quickly fill you in on who this person is. Uh, things like she lives in the city, she's been there for a few years, it's graduating, and she's lasted long enough to lose sight of her hopes and dreams. And dark Burton, but she's pure suicidal. In fact, tonight may well be the night. And she says to Mr. Abraham, just in time for the weekend. Hetty is very close to doing the deed and she's clearly been giving it a lot of thought and has prepared some options for herself. And she has bottles of pills that she lays neatly out in a row on her desk. Then she takes out of a drawer like a small penknife and she opens like the smallest blade and sets that next to the pills. Then she opens her window to show the busy street five stories below. And she looks out of that down to the street uh, for no doubt the thousands time, millionth time she's looked down there. Plus she has a smelly bath and she starts filling that up while she experiments with her hairdryer, testing the length of the power cord, stretching it from the socket to see if it stretches above the, uh, the, the, the bath. Um, Hetty has laid out this smorgasbord of options 
which she sits on her bed contemplating, and then her mother phones and leaves a message, and her mother is uh, vivacious and uh, she's selfish and see her, um, and she's only called because she can't remember the name of a restaurant that she likes. Hetty almost opens up to her mother, but the lady is so self-absorbed, it puts Hetty off and she hangs up on her mid-sentence. Uh, there are various people who can play this. I'm thinking maybe Susan Sarandon. That might even be too old, um, but you know, I'm open to options somewhere that someone in their 40s would be fine. Um, I just always assume Susan Sarandon is always 40. She, um, <laughs> she looks at the arrangement um, of suicide props and the phone rings again, and uh, she goes to answer because um, she thinks it's her mum calling back, but it's not her mother calling back. It's Shauna from the cafe with another reminder to go on this date. Um, and she leaves that message and Hetty does not want to go, but it's Friday night and it's either that or suicide. It's a close call, but she decides to go on the date. And she says to Mr. Abrahams, at least this way I get a free meal. Um, so she turns up at the bar and she meets Jonathan, and that's um, dude from uh, Ted Lasso. Um, he's not a huge role in this, but he's here. And uh, she's not that enthusiastic, but tries her best to engage. He says she, he's glad she showed, and Hetty's like, ugh, I really had to do some reorganizing for my evening. It's a real wink wink to the audience, feel like I was going to kill myself. So Hetty and Jonathan really hit it off a real clicking connection. They talk and get along and he asks if she's up for a second date. She isn't sure, I didn't have plans, but he gives her his number and asks her to call and she's 50-50 on it. Uh, as they say goodnight and share an amazing kiss, he says that's one of his worst fears, going for a kiss and having, you know, the, the woman turning her head away. And he asks her, just as they're, you know, leaving the bar or whatever, what her worst fear is, and she doesn't answer and acts a bit coy. He doesn't push, but playfully says if they do make it for a second date, will she tell him, will she tell him what she's most scared of? And she says if they do meet for a second date, she will absolutely tell him what her worst fear is, and they have another kiss, and they part all grins and hormones and genuine happiness. And Hetty walks down the street, a small smile on her lips, her first genuine happy feelings for perhaps a long time. Now, that, I'm going to say, the credits played all the way along here, and that is all fairly condensed, so I'm saying we're, we're doing okay here. Um, so as she walks now, um, we cut to, um, very briefly, to four or five very random, very short scenes of apparently unrelated people doing unrelated things. For example, things like a guy is about to leave work, and his boss calls him back and he hesitates at the door. Does he pretend to ignore his boss and head out? Or does he go back and see what little job he must do before he can go? And we cut to Hetty walking and we cut to like an older lady fussing over her cat on the bus. And the cat, the cat is losing its shit and making a lot of angry noises. And people on the bus are getting disturbed and are giving her the side eye. And so it's a stop. And does she get off a stop early or does she stay on an extra stop to her stop? We cut to Hetty walking and she's contemplating the evening and is very introspective. We see a guy loading the back of a truck and he closes the door, but then notices he forgot to pack one of the crates of bananas. Does he reopen the door or does he drive away? And uh, with each of these is intercut with either Hetty walking or even it could even start earlier during the date. And it's more of a long game. Now, the culminated results of all these separate choices, actions and inactions 
ends with the lady and the cat coming face to face with a large dog which freaks out the cat, which startles the dog, which excites a florist who drops and smashes a pot plant, which sends a customer like back out the door, which opens right in front of Hetty as she's walking down the street, making her sidestep for one and a half seconds, just off the curb and into the side of the road. And this truck with uh, the missing banana crate speeds right towards her. And Hetty looks and we see from her point of view, the truck screeching right at her. And then we hear the crash, bang, wallop, cut to black. And then I'm thinking, directed by Tim Burton comes up. And so that's, nice. that's Hetty's end. Now, some people might say that's taken from the curious case of Benjamin Button film, where Kate Blanchett is hit by a car and it's all these little, all these little things had to happen to make that happen. And to that, I say that is correct, that exists. But I also say years ago, I mean, for one thing, I've always really liked those little, little decisions that change things, you're never aware mm. of them. I like that concept. Years ago, I started like a, oh, I'm sure it's a very tedious, bad um, short story, but it was kind of like pulpy. And it started with the main character saying, I wouldn't have died if 37 things, no, it was something like, I wouldn't have died if uh, this man hadn't eaten fish that morning. And then there's this huge sort of Amazing. domino effect um, and it leads to his death. There's this sort of like noir thing. So anyway, my point Will is I being, I've always I have no idea where it sentence. is. Okay. Yeah, I'm sure it was all downhill from there. Uh, it was something like, yeah, that, uh, uh, God knows where that is now. I'm sure it's probably, probably with the angels. But um, nonetheless, that's that's what happens. And people will say, no, it's ripping it off. I don't care. Um, so, the, uh, so there you go. Hetty wakes up in her apartment. Uh, the neon is buzzing and washing her in red and green. It takes a moment and she's very dazed and groggy and she sits up takes in her surroundings, slowly gets up, looks out the window and discovers outside the city is not what she remembers. And it's weird shit, you know, it's um, in the first film, it's all interior of the house really. And then they, if they step outside, they go to the whole of the desert and everything, or they can go to like the offices and the, you know, the bureaucracy and all of that. Um, in this case, for whatever reason, outside the window, she's seeing the world or a version of the world and it's all weird and bendy kind of looks like the city but it's also kind of stop motion and just weird looking and very bendy i see it all very bendy everything's bendy a bit like toontown i suppose in that sense um so she takes a moment you would like this no real reaction just looking out the window and sees all that and by the way mr abrams is now somewhat larger and he's he's big he's like in fact i see him changing shape sometimes he's human size sometimes he's like small dog size um, sometimes he's normal stick insect size um so right now he's there and he speaks and it's johnny depp doing the voice and it's him and he tells the truth of it all uh, hetty is dead at uh, first um, she was a prisoner in the flat um, but you know like originally but with Mr. Abrams, she makes it to the reception desk in this, you know, apartment building she lives in. So she gets out of her room, she gets down the corridor, and everything is bendy and weird and like, you know, Scaramanga's fun palace shit. And she gets down these weird stairs, and I'm sure weird things, interactions with weird Tim Burton-y stop-motion characters, like that fucking weird priest at the end of the first one who yeah. marries them. Um, some you know, people like that hanging out. 
imagine kind of like a seedy motel like in like Highlander or Terminator, but it's like the underworld and this weird Tim Burton going crazy. So she, she encounters in passing many weird things, makes it to the reception desk. Everything is twisted and surreal and Burton-y. Um, it's sort of Dr. Caligari as well. Um, before long, with all the tenants and ex-tenants of the, the building all turning up, and these are who all the people are. It's all the people who have died over the decades in this apartment building. All the suicides, as, and also an old lady who died with her cats, and all of them are like all attached to her, all ghosts. Um, and then, like, and that was in the 80s, and there was a man who choked to death on a bratwurst or something in the 70s. Um, and there's a couple who killed each other in an argument in the 50s, and they've all got the, you know, the, the injuries, of course. Um, plus the original owners of the building who were killed by the mob um, in like the 30s, um, and like the, the, the guy was thrown off the roof, so his whole head is sort of caved in, so he's like there. Um, they're all fucked up and crazy. Um, after some faffing and world building, uh, Hetty finds the way to leave the building and get out into the city, and she go and she goes on this crazy journey to you know relatively short to find her whatever it is the case officer um like in the first film in this i just call it parole officer and maybe that's just what it's called here because it's a city it's just a slightly a different type of right, you know, yeah it's just different like, yeah um so her parole officer is like the sort of 1970s stereotypical pimp type on the street who was murdered in the 70s by one of his women stabbed with his own feather from his pimp hat and he's like i have an allergy to feathers all right um hetty is able to explore some of i hope that doesn't get me cancelled hetty is able to explore some of the city in the afterlife and we see some weird shit uh, we see a few different sides and locations and regions of the afterlife but mainly the bureaucracy is still the most important element and it's all about the red tape and delays and so on. Trying to get across the city is a nightmare, of course, with the buses that are late, nothing runs on time, the traffic lights are misleading, all this stuff. Uh, she's still in the city, but it's all warped, blah, blah, blah. Uh, weird beasts and worms and snakes and newts and inside-out bears and headless six-foot fish things with detachable heads and feet and things. Um, the, uh, the city is surrounded by desert with sandworms and all of that um, floating around, but all the, and it's all stop motion, but all these other things are out there as well. Hetty is confronted with the hard facts that she was so close to ending it anyway, so what does she have to be sad about? Uh, this is what she wanted, probably. Um, she has an epiphany. You must get to Jonathan before it's too late to somehow contact him in the real world and pass on a message, so that's being cut. Um, she just wants to, she wants to get to him. She feels that's just the most important thing. It's um, all, all she has to live for at this point because she died with unfinished business. The message, the thing that she wants to tell him, uh, which is you know what we're most scared of. So she sets out with Mr. Abrahams across the city and out into the wastes, through the deserts and forests. Oh yes, you get through the desert and get through the sandworms. Mr. Abrams, by the way, at one point she says, "How are you here?" In the afterlife, we said, "Well, I'm dead," and we just cut to the in real life, and like the landlord just steps on him, and you just see a bit of crushed Amazing. shape in the corridor. Yeah, it's really dark. <laughs> um, so it is, in fact, the ghost of this statement, but they have this connection. Um, so they set out across the city through the desert, and he knows a way to avoid the you know, the fishy sandworm things, uh, which were amazing. And out into the weird, you know, really expanded. There's like a forest. 
once you get through the desert, it's weird Tim Burton, clearly dark fairy tale, deep Grim Brother forest shit. Um, and then, you know, twisting trees and talking faces and creatures that are totally insane and, and more. Um, Eddie must traverse the afterlife, getting across the city, through the desert, mountains, blah, 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 and through checkpoints. It's still bureaucracy, but checkpoints and border controls from one weird, weird region to the next, and paperwork, and triplicate, duplicate, all this stuff, and she's finding ways to get around it. Um, the desert is uh, is more or less, you know, open to her, um, as she, and because, as she finds out, she's one card to play, which a pimp parole officer has told her about. You can play the unfinished business card. It's like a hall pass, and the sandworm is the monitor. So one time only, for one use only, you can get through the desert, through various checkpoints to the mountains beyond, and then forest, blah, blah, blah. So her quest is simple. She must reach Jonathan in the real world and contact him. To do that, she learns the best, most effective ways to, of course, appear as a ghost in his home. Uh, but to reach his home, she must complete the journey. So um, there's like portals and gateways on this journey. Every time she's in the afterlife, of course, time moves slowly. We, we know this, but different regions, it's different. It's a different effect. When you're in the desert, it's like, what, a minute is like a couple of days or something. So in this case, it's different. Different regions affect time in the real world differently. In fact, some regions, when you're there, time runs backwards in, in our world, which gives her more time. But she only finds this out for reasons I'm going to get to. Um, so she has to get through the place and occasionally pop out in the real world to, quote, unquote, get our bearings. Because going across this, it's like being, you know, underwater with a bag on your head. You need to pop up occasionally just to know you're going in the right direction. Uh, and to get her eligible, she has to get eligible uh, haunting privileges and this. Through most of this, Miss Abrahams is sometimes tiny to fit in her pocket. Sometimes he's massive like a pony and can ride him. Sometimes he wears a top hat. Um, it would have been voiced by Prince of, uh, Vincent Price. Uh, but, you know, he's dead, so he's not really dead. Um, but maybe he even does a kind of a, a price voice. I, I, I see him basically speaking like death, that sort of dark, uh, yeah, deep. That works words. for me. He works for me. Um, she also tries to appear, oh yeah, we're not doing that stuff. We don't need to get to that yet. Um, so, and yeah, it's around this time we find out her unfinished businesses. She wants to pass on this message to Jonathan. Um, she tries to make it just with herself and Mr. Abrams, but it's very dangerous and she finds herself in some crazy situations and dangers from which she barely escapes. So she knows pretty early on that she needs to get a guide to take her across and through various means that you can imagine could be introduced in the plot. Maybe the pimp drops her name. Maybe she finds like a little advert in some like 1970s sort of style uh, phone booth like porno cards and it's Beetlejuice of course and so she hires Beetlejuice to get them across uh, so she can contact Jonathan. Um, so they strike a bargain, Mr Abrams tries to warn her out of it um, but you know uh, Beetlejuice tries to eat him so Miss Abrams fucks off and stays clear of this nutter. So off they go uh, moving across regions of the underworld um, and occasionally, like I say, they have to pop up through portals that Beetlejuice knows about 
into the real world, coming out in funny places. Um, and also Beetlejuice says one of the things that got him the gig is he says, I can take you to this region of the under afterworld, afterlife, underworld, where when we're here, time runs backwards up there. So the time you've lost going through the desert, you're not, you know, because the thing is, um, she needs to reach Jonathan before it's too late, because she can't appear to him as a ghost if they no longer have this connection. So really, she's got a week, she's got to do it before her funeral, so the clock is ticking, which is another important element. So Beetlejuice takes her to this place where time runs backwards, but it's, it's a weird, weird, weird Tim Burton-y Salvador Dali. It takes it to the next level. Very difficult to get across, very surreal, very weird. But, when, and, but you have to get out before the time has caught up with yourself, because if you, if, if you catch up to the point of your death, with time running backwards in the real world, then it sucks your soul inside out or some shit. You go directly to this weird hell or something. So, you know, you mustn't ever say so there's a so there's an exciting scene where she has to get out of this sort of weird cracked mirror universe type thing. Literally cracked mirrors, like seeing weird distorted reflections and shit before the clock catches up with her own death. Incredible concept, Incredible concept. It's trippy. So she gets out of that and that's like a set piece. Um, but she gets out and that's also good because it sort of reset the clock so she can, you know, try and get there in time for the funeral. Um, one place they also pop up is Hetty's mother's place where we see more of this woman and her, her nasty life and personality. And um, maybe it's even like her stepmother and her real mother was dead a very long time ago. Her father died a couple of years ago, maybe. So maybe this ex-stepmother is the only family she has left or something. Um, so she's kind of, you know, it's a little George Bailey Scrooge type shit. She's appearing places, but she's invisible, of course. Um, and she pops up as like a, her old boyfriend, who's another selfish goon and another place, uh, like the home of Shauna, her co-worker. And we see some of her life, which as we find out is not so rosy as Hetty always imagined. Shauna was always really upbeat and trying to set her up on dates and stuff. But actually she saw that her life was actually pretty fucked. And she did nothing horrendous, but just not great. Uh, but she's always able to see the positive and there's like little lessons to be learned. So um, Hetty um, was always actually suspicious as to why Shauna was always so nice. But now she sees she was just literally trying to help. Um, so this is like Hetty's turning point into being a more positive person, even in death. Um, and maybe even she half appears and helps out Shauna as a half ghost, and maybe she does some crazy weird shit with her face as well, scaring away Shauna's last boyfriend or something. So she gets through all the places with Beetlejuice, and Beetlejuice, of course, cannot be trusted, and he's up to all sorts of shenanigans. Um, but she can't spend too long in any one place, and she really does need him. Uh, Beetlejuice tries um, to, like, totally betray her many times, actually. He's like, oh, sorry, totally slipped my mind. And like a worm slips out of his ear and Beetle catches it. Then, whoa, not so fast there, fella. And he eats the half worm and then stuffs the remaining <laughs> half back into his ear for later. Oh, so I got in a little bit of Beetle juice there. Uh, there is a sure sign to Hetty that perhaps he's not uh, to be trusted. Um, so Hetty does manage to get away from him. He is planning on doing something bad um, to get to Jonathan. Um, but so, um, so maybe at some point, because otherwise he's going to just be in it a lot. And I think it works better if he comes and goes. So maybe she gives him the slip. He gets her through a certain part, but then she kind of betrays him. 
and gives him the slip and so he's not in it again for a little bit and he comes back really angry later. So she gets to an old haunted house which is occupied by a crazy psychic lady who knows how to read maps, maps being how to navigate the underworld. So despite um, Beetlejuice trying lots of alternatives, Hetty and a Mr. Abrams emerge for air in this old haunted house and they meet this old lady, well, this older lady with this, um, and she's sitting there and she's wearing like this huge hat with a thick black veil and um, Hetty establishes contact with her in a witty scene when she can see her and of course you know, she lifts up the veil and it's Lydia played by Ramona Ryder and uh, the house is the house from the original. Lydia lives there and she's not always goth and black shroud like in this moment but on special occasions she'll quote unquote don the dress. Uh, we find out at, at some point Lydia is happy, she lives quote unquote alone but with lots of ghosts and things. Um, she's, you know, her family are off, maybe they're dead, maybe they're not, but they're not there. Um, they make a very nice living, she's fine, she's like kind of a local, semi-local celebrity. She's like a successful photographer with exhibitions and stuff, and she's also an author, a kind of a, like a less famous Anne Rice type, who writes in their spooky literature and shit. And she is also a psychic for hire on special, you know, in, in special cases. Uh, and she also teaches at that school, um, and she um, runs a shelter for abandoned animals, uh, living and dead. And we see some astonishing selections of some of these dead animals who are living there, um, running around and stuff. And Hetty says, like, you know, and you live here all alone? And you know, Lydia says, hardly alone. And we see uh, two grotesque and familiar monster faces pop out and scare everyone. And then the faces are squeezed and squished and rearranged into more human forms and we see their Adam and Barbara played by Baldwin and Davis and they're back in an extended cameo in a very fun scene with the three. Now if Beetlejuice is there at this point he has to you know, keep pretending that he's like his own brother or something to avoid them. Um, there's some hijinks um, but I don't think Beetle's there during this it'd be too weird uh, because they just say don't trust him. Uh, they agree to take Hetty and um, to the next checkpoint a step closer to Jonathan before Hetty's funeral deadline. So there's a nice scene of them catching uh, Suckle up on their lives, quote unquote, what Adam and Barbara are getting up to these days. And they also get through and avoid lots of uh, bureaucratic border checks. You know, Adam and Barbara know a lot of tricks these days. Um, as ghosts, by the way, of course, they, they look older. They look like they do now, circa 2022. And Hetty asks about that because she's maybe seen photos or in the house. You know, Lydia kept photos, maybe. And um, so she says, yeah, you're, you're looking older. And Alec, you know, Adam is like, no, no, ghosts can age. They don't need to, but we got married to grow old together. So we thought, why not? And Gina Davis, uh, uh, Babs says, a lot of ghosts age, actually. And she directs Hetty's attention to like this ancient old man sitting in like a bit of ghost sitting in the corner and he's totally fucked up, basically a skeleton just decomposing. And he's tiny and bald and decrepit. And he looks at Hetty and wheezes, I was four years old when that horse stepped on my head. <laughs> so they move on. Crazy locations, wacky spirits, weird encounters, strange creatures. Hetty um, moves on and leaves Babs and um, Adam as far as they can go. Uh, Beetlejuice reappears. Um, um, our hero sort of stays in touch with Winona Ryder and she says she's going to sort of help out where she can. Um, 
So we learn basically though that Beetlejuice is leading um, Hetty into a dangerous place because he's so angry with her for leaving her before. He's like, no, no, I know a shortcut. Let's go, let's go. To this like cave of forgotten screams and the plan is to leave her there in spirit wailing form with him taking her free pass to get to the overworld to get his old job back or to do some sort of promotion. And this pass will help get him through the door. Um, so the cave is like this huge underground underworld tavern, uh, lots of weird shadows and huge drops into deep darkness. And some of the quote unquote drops are like up. So you just step and you go whoop and flip up. Um, or you can fall like sideways or you're up into the ceiling pit or plummet um, sideways into nothing. There's no real sort of up and down. Um, Adam and Barbara figure out, or maybe when on a rider, uh, Lydia figures out that Hetty is being quote unquote guided by Beetlejuice and they rush to stop Beetle's plan of sending her into an eternity of darkness. Um, Beetle is trying to coax Hetty inside the trap and has turned into a weird multi-headed Medusa thing ready to push her in. And um, they stop Beetlejuice from pushing Hetty into the cave just in time and Beetle swipes and hisses and tries some dirty tricks but then falls from a ledge and plummets sideways into darkness. Ah, he disappears. Hetty is to Abrams and the ghosts leave, but we stay in the cave a moment more. A shaky hand emerges from the pit with a growling guttural snarl coming from the very, very end of the uh, So Hetty gets to the funeral just in time. Not a huge turnout at her funeral, but Shauna is there, Hetty's mother is there, and best of all, Jonathan is there. Hetty can't make contact, but Ryder has given her some advice about how to get his attention. So we're at the funeral, and then uh, Hetty initiates a huge song and dance number in the style of the first film. And I was thinking some sort of Mexican upbeat song, but I couldn't tell you exactly what. <laughs> but something, something really like da 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 da, -da involving uh, castanets and maracas. There's a huge song and dance number in the uh, funeral, and everyone's going nuts, um, but with mourners. And um, but you know they're all hypocrites anyway. Um, who would, some of them were texting and stuff during the service. Um, but of course, you know Jonathan and Sean are all legit sad. Um, so everyone has a nice song. The priest sings and levitates. Um, everyone does a rumba and shake their booties. The coffin flies open um, at some point. And um, we'll get we'll get to that. <clears throat> I don't want to get too far ahead, but um, but thing, creepy things are happening. Hetty is just about to get to see Jonathan and to get him to see and hear her pass on this message. But Beetlejuice turns up, ruins everything. Deep into the climax here, yeah, um, he opens up on the church and crazy, terrible monsters spring forth. Beetlejuice helps, quote unquote, Hetty by almost killing Jonathan, and possibly he is accidentally killed you know before he's resuscitated a minute later but he's dead for a second and he sees her maybe uh, or maybe she just appears to him. Beetle pulls a last trick in his efforts to claim Hetty's past and takes over Hetty's corpse in the coffin. He gets her to sit up and jumps out of the coffin and so Beetlejuice is possessing the, uh, Hetty's corpse and in Beetle's own voice of course um, he, she addresses Jonathan almost ruining everything as well as um, grabbing Hetty's mother and planting a huge kiss on her lips. And then uh, Hetty's corpse slaps the priest and is in the process of totally destroying her relationship with Jonathan. 
therefore Hetty is the ghost real Hetty is able with Lydia's help perhaps to finally apparate in ghostly form in front of Jonathan. Shauna and Jonathan and Lydia um, chant and chat uh, Beetlejuice inside the corpse of Rotetti, unable to move except still talk, uh, totally rigid, back in the coffin. Um, Hetty and Jonathan um, trick him into you know getting stuck back in the coffin and now trapped in the body, trapped in the coffin, stuck, unable to move. Um, the coffin lid closes and he's lowered into the earth. And the voice from inside the coffin is like, you know, making lewd comments and being stuck about being stuck for the eternity in the ground in the coffin in Hetty's corpse, unable, unable to quote unquote make the, you know, he is, he's very able to quote unquote make the most of it, inferring if he could move, he would, you know, do inappropriate things with her dead body. Uh, Beetle says, you know, get to know you better, you know what I'm saying, honey? So Beetle is trapped. Uh, Hetty finally has a quiet moment with Jonathan. And she says, you know, you asked me a question and it was what scares me the most. Um, and she says, you know, the only thing is just losing people who I care for. And that's really everything. Like, you know, I don't let people get close because people always die, parents, blah, blah, blah. And um, so they meet me before. So I, I don't let them get close. Um, so she recognizes the need for positivity now, even in the darkest of caves. And with that passed on, she too can now pass. You know, Jonathan says he'll never forget her, and uh, Beetlejuice makes muffled, sarcastic noises from inside the mocking coffin. Uh, and we end being Hetty and Mr. Abrams back at her, the apartment, but it's quite nice now. The other ghost tenants have been affected by her journey and the outcome. Everyone's more positive and they're all singing. Everyone's more at peace. So in this sort of like ghostly apartment block, um, all the ghost tenants are all like having a nice time. Out on the street, it's also having had an effect, and that's kind of looking still weird as fuck, but every everything's slightly less hostile, um, a bit more colourful and happy. The buildings bend and sing, and the sky hums and cackles. Um, Adam and Barbara and Lydia pop up for a visit, and everyone greets them warmly. Uh, the dead landlord from the twenties is like, "Hey, look who made it! I hope you brought dip." Etc. <laughs> Everyone sings and makes merry in this apartment building situated, quote, in the best part of town. And we pull back and have a happy, bouncing, happy singing song toontown uh, with a pimp in the street and the street itself and a sandworm flying high in the sky. And they're all <laughs> laughing and singing and dancing to their dead heart's content. And then right at the end, we cut to the graveyard and Hetty's grave. And from under the earth, we hear more music and uh, loose soil vibrations at the top of the, uh, the, the mound of soil on the grave as Beetle's voice like comes up and Mamba dancing from inside the coffin uh, and you just hear him being like, oh yeah baby, move those bones and then you just have the end and then it's credits and uh, the tagline is uh, simply dark deeds, grave matters uh, so there's there's your Beetlejuice too. Grave too, matters right? is a new down for the cow. That's bloody amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Jesus, Sheppy, that's intimidatingly good. The imagination you've thrown in there is amazing. I just let me go in reverse order on the little things I scribbled as we went there. So I just um, I just go. I feel that you've got some really good lecherous beetle gags there that are just the right side. They'll get away with it. It's good. It's good. It's happy. Um. Oh God, what does that even say? I wrote it too quickly. 
Um, I just, uh, just I, the imagination going on here, man, is just amazing. Like, even just the being sucked up into a crevasse is one, just, and you've really gone off on one around the loads and loads of little sprinkles there and just little touches they'd be thinking of. I've done none of that, Sheppy. And that's, I'm, I'm not trying to project onto I'm just saying, just well done. It's amazing. Um, Thank you. I will say a lot of it was just like, you know, cool Tim burton things. So I, I, it's, you know, it's, Thank you. But you've retaken really it into new areas and made it new, 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 like new apartment in the city, Toontown. This stuff is really cool. I love Mr. Abraham has been giving you opportunity for exposition, but it's very visual. I can really see him. It's really nice. And I, I want to see this performance of Florence Pugh's because she's sort of, she's fantastic. She's like really one to watch, isn't she? She just, but has she done anything this broad? I'm really excited about it. And I'm excited about the fact that, you know, she would act it up as we know her, like, you know, shit, I'm dead, but it's it's not that tone. It's a totally different yeah. tone. I want to see this from her. I'm very excited about that. Um, yeah, I just, uh, I wish I could see what I've written there, but I also have just this view of, like, I'd love to see, you know, the James Corden with the cast of Ted Lasso in, like, 20 years' time or whatever, saying, yeah, do you remember? And they've all gone on to these Hollywood careers. <laughs> <That's kind> of... <laughs> nice. Uh, but, yeah, man, that was, that was great fun, Sheppy. Wonderful. Wonderful. And I, I Thank loved you very it. Much. Oh, that was it. What I'd written here was the you'd never know. Not even a doctor could read that. But what I had written was the reveal of the original cast was wonderful in that house. That's exactly oh. the way to do it. That's exactly the way to do it. It was brilliant. Well, yeah. thank you, Jimmy. Uh, it was it was very nice invite. I, I like I think I've said it before anyway, but I never really know what I'm going to do, even when I suggest something. I don't have a plan at all. It might as well be you suggesting something like I'm suddenly like, oh, I've got to write. I'm with you, man. And I, I, what I love, what I think is some of the secret sauce is just how, you know, I feared we might go down a similar route here. And yet, and yet, with no like consultation, we've gone in totally different directions, you know, which is, which is nice, man. It's happy. It's happy. Nice. But, um, oh, well, I'm, I'm very glad to hear it. I can't wait to hear yours, Jimmy. Will so it? if you're happy yeah. to jump in, yeah. I, I can't wait. All right. Okay. Well, look, so I have um, made up a rule here um, as well, which you'll find out in a minute, um, in terms of the universe and what's possible for the, for the dead people. And I've then taken that rule too far. <laughs> so oh, good. The, the Mission Impossible <laughs> face removal mask, you know, just overdoing that rule. But anyway, that's <laughs> we'll find out all about that in a minute. Um, I've gone for you. <laughs> Uh, a title of Beetlejuice, comma, Beetlejuice. That's what it's going to be called. Oh, nice. And um, and it's 1993. I'm saying Burton is juggling this with Nightmare. That's fine. That's basically it. You know, he's, it, we, we pull it off somehow. Burton's working overtime. Um, he, he didn't write Nightmare anyway. Yeah. Yeah, I, mean, I mean, he didn't direct Nightmare, so he wasn't there. But... There's time. Then That's nice. That's <laughs> that. So he's not too involved. And then, so I just, um, I wanted to say as well, like I, I did, I, I thought initially a, a title of Beetlejuice, the old spelling, colon, you know, Revenge of Beetlejuice with the G-E-U-S-E. -E oh, nice. Um, but, but obviously that's not really what this plot is anyway. And in fact, to be honest, I'm giving Beetlejuice much more of an arc of redemption than I think, um, or at least faux redemption. Um, anyway, we'll get to all that. So cast is uh, Michael Keaton, Beetlejuice, Gina back as Barbara, Alec as Adam, 
Jeffrey Jones back as Charles, Catherine O'Hara back as Delia Woodard, Ryder as Lydia, all of those guys. Patrice Martinez back as the receptionist. Now, I didn't know this, by the way, but that receptionist, who I'm also in love with, along with every other female character in this movie, <laughs> is, um, is also in Dirty Rotten Scoundrels and Three Amigos, apparently. Um, wow. She's, she's worth looking into, but, um, you know, tragically, she passed quite young. Um, so, oh. Yeah, but like really cool. Well, that's a good couple of years. 87, 88 was oh, very hot for her. And then she's in a Zorro TV show as well. But yeah, she's, she brings some real energy and sass, I think, to that reception. It's cool. Um, and then we've got Juno back. Sylvia Sidney's in this one as well. Um, we've got, just just briefly, and then I've got um, Diane Weist as Diane. I've just gone for simplicity. She's called Diane. Yeah, well, and I've gone John Ashton as John. Oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> this will get you this will get you excited i put in brackets john made me top billing he may be a cert to win best supporting actor after this performance so anyway wow. just, just to you, um and then i think second week in a row of casting but i've got christian slater as orionis or orionis so i might be mispronouncing that but um but anyway so that's going to be christian that's slater exciting and i've got some did you say what year it was 1993 Oh, I love it. Um, oh, so that's meaty. Uncredited treats for you coming very Ooh. soon. Um, so brace yourself. Oh, Jimmy. <laughs> oh, I'm a, I'm a quiver. I uh, can't wait. Yeah, yeah. I'm braced. I'm happy. So you've got to exactly as you would have predicted. There's a seven to ten minutes, nearly. Um, cold <laughs> open pre-credit sequence that I'm going to go quite deep into then don't fear you'll be able to get to, to bed at a reasonable hour because I blitz through the rest of it but um, okay so we open cold open on the waiting room of Juno's office and we see there's no one waiting total flip on this idea of having like 9 million 900 whatever you know and you're number three or whatever in the queue um, a very tight ship is now being run at Juno's office, and one of the reasons for this seems to be the diligence of a young upstart called Orionis. Christian Slater is now um, supporting Patrice Martinez on reception and running the admin for Juno. It's barely alluded to, but, you know, beneath his suit sleeves, there's a couple of bandages covering his wrists. So he's obviously committed suicide and gone into civil service. Juno comes out, you know, she's like, you're a breath of fresh air. You're the best silver servant we've ever had. And believe me, son, we've had some disasters. And, she, and I see her sort of blowing cigarette smoke into Orionis's face at that point. And as she says this, and Orionis is sort of blinking, you know. And he's like, and, and he sort of says, but, but who could screw this up? It's the easiest job in the world, you know. And, uh, and, and Juno just says, well, where to start? And then we basically get the Beetlejuice origin story. Um, oh wow and, um, and and basically just to manage your expectations Shepard we don't get the screw up story um, we can save that for Beetlejuice 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 in the future but <laughs> we get the, the Beetlejuice alive story and um, and it goes black and white and just imagine a voiceover from Juno at key intersections here it's generally a bit silent and unscripted there's moments of dialogue but the bottom line is Juno's kind of carrying the voiceover of this I haven't really scripted that, but imagine some funny barbed comments over the top yeah. of this. Gothicy, New York, I've gone 1920s, Gatsby era. Um, and um, we see a clean cut Beetlejuice, or at least I've gone with sort of black hair. His hair generally is, is sort of slick black. 
Um, still, he's got a slightly rounded face, you know. I mean, yeah. it's not quite a straight swap for Arkeaton, basically, is all I'm saying. You know, it still has Beetlejuice looks a little bit. And we see him as a regular employee of the month at an undertaker's working for uncredited Vincent Price. Um, Beetlejuice is a, I haven't given him a real name in the real world or anything, but it's just to say, you know, he's a nice man. He's doing respectful undertakery things, wiping down bodies, greeting, supporting families. And a mousy assistant is brought in, uncredited Michelle Pfeiffer. And I want to be in an American cinema when that happens a year after Batman Returns, but, you know, yeah. Um, arrives and joins the funeral directors and, um, and and it's kind of Adrian and Rocky style spectacles they have a sweet courtship scene in the office involved and I thought there'd be a nice scene with like Beetlejuice sort of lending her a pen and jumping up and down you know and I, I just kind of can see that sort of little interplay I, I've put here Keaton is up and down a lot in Beetlejuice he seems to be standing up sitting down a lot he kind of has that kind of energy about him he must have done lots of crunches in his diet but <laughs> Um, so I've put that Pfeiffer grows in confidence to the point where we get the spectacles removed, a kiss, a blossoming relationship, but we can see the strains. Um, Beetlejuice wants to stay in the city of the Undertakers, and Pfeiffer wants to expand her horizons. Beetlejuice starts to dip a toe um, for and with her. They go to museums and stuff. Um, this is obviously 1920s museums and whatnot. There's sculptures around, and there's little hints of the Beetlejuice ticks. As he plays with a couple of sculptures, he's a bit nervous. He's trying to make a laugh and stuff. Um, and then they, we see them play tennis as well with twin yeah. uh, wooden rackets to get him out of the Undertaker's as well. And I just see a moment where Beetlejuice is like, you know, tries to play and then hitting it back. Classic. The ball comes off the edge of his racket, goes up in the air and bounces off his head. And we just see him turn for a moment and get a bit angry. Beetlejuice yeah. flash of the Beetlejuice face. Anyway, this temper and general lack of motivation eventually see him lose Pfeiffer. A few years pass. We see the passage of time. Price passes away, the, the um, funeral director. Beetlejuice takes over the funeral home. And one night, Pfeiffer arrives in the rain at the door upset. Beetlejuice invites her in. Turns out that her mother has passed. She doesn't have the means to pay for the full funeral. Perhaps a nod here to having, a, um, having to sell her house and medical insurance. There's a bit of sticking it to the man. It's a bit of capitalism going on in Beetlejuice as well. But, you know, she doesn't know where to go, what to do. Beetlejuice says he'll take care of the funeral arrangements, no problem. Um, the day the funeral arrives, Beetlejuice puts on his best suit. Everything is set beautifully, wonderfully for a respectful memorial to Pfeiffer's mother. Before it all starts, Pfeiffer arrives, thanks him for doing everything. The old twinkle is there between them. But their conversation is interrupted by a man arriving with baby twins. I had that man at Charlie Sheen at one point, but it's too distressing. <laughs> um, so a, a man arrives with baby twins, and this sends Beetlejuice into a spin. He makes immediate excuses, leaves the funeral to a deputy, and then wanders the streets drinking, um, drinking himself into a stupor, takes himself to the nearest bridge to jump off, jumps off it, jumps off only to land on a barge passing underneath. <laughs> Jumps off the barge, only to land on a small fishing boat. Good if people just had some ridiculous failed suicide attempts. I didn't have enough time to think of lots and lots of funny ones. But the bottom line is, lands on a small fishing boat. And he throws the skipper overboard, and from the fishing boat with a life jacket. So he's kind of been a bit nice to the skipper. But bottom line is, he throws him off the board, and he's because he wants to kind of save his life. And he speeds up the engine of the boat, and he's heading straight. And I imagine it's one of these old twenties big wooden boats. Yeah. 
um, but he's heading straight for the pillar of the next bridge. And um, as he approaches the bridge, a lady, Pfeiffer, appears at the top, begging him to stop. And um, and Beatle just sort of has an inkling of what's going on. He tries to wrestle with the wheel, but it's too late. His boat hits the pillar. Beatle just is flung through the air and catches his jacket on the jut of the bridge. As he's dangling, Pfeiffer explains the man she was with was her brother. The babies are her nephews. Now, come on, we just need to get you down from there, you silly Billy. And I put a side note, I could really hear Michelle Pfeiffer say the word silly Billy. And yes. I think, like she's got a really sexy voice, Pfeiffer. I'm going to say sexier than Kathleen Turner at times. Like there's something about yeah. the way she'd say a silly Billy. Anyway, um, <laughs> but Beetlejuice's jacket is tearing as she's saying this and, um, and it's losing its grip. And before Pfeiffer can help him down, a beetle crawls along the scaffold yeah. of the bridge and his pincers take that last bit of fabric and he drops. And we're back to Juno and Orionis. And um, and, <laughs> and and Orionis says, Well, was that was that really suicide though for this guy? You know, he wanted to live. Um, and Juno just says, Orionis, that idiot tried to kill himself three times. Three. But that and she just <laughs> says that. And then basically she blows smoke into the screen and it dissolves mm. into the brass score. And we get the bump, 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 bump. And it's like beating oh. the and, uh, Astonishing! I love and then, it. Uh, and then we're in the house, and it's the same setup of the co-living that we left at the last one. Lots of fussing at the moment, and the reason for the fussing is it's Lydia's graduation. But basically, lots of nice touches around the place, Sheppy. So there's sort of beetle sculptures and stuff. So you know, we've still got that um, that inspiration for Catherine O'Hara's character. Um, and um, but new neighbours, Diane and John, have moved to the area. Um, they don't have a family themselves. John is a big shot town planner. Um, this is our John Ashton and Diane West. And, um, and and John's been transferred to the town for some big project. And um, Charles and Delia have invited the neighbours over before they leave for the graduation. Um, and um, under, under a false pretext that they don't suspect anything. But here's my little rule, Sheppy. In this Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, if Baldwin and Davis can possess their bodies, they can actually leave the house and not be in the big desert world and can attend the graduation for Lydia in the real world and can wander around the real world in possession of the body, if that makes sense. So um, that's kind of my fudge and my rule for Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, right? So um, so they don't have to engage with the snaky June world. Um, and so they go to the graduation, it's all nice and happy. And um, now this is where Ashton is going to earn his stripes, right? Because he's basically, it's bald, it's Ashton acting as, you know, Baldwin, essentially. Um, but but um, Baldwin and Davis, as these two, as the neighbours, are kind of like, and we might get some little moments where, you know, they look in the mirror, but they see themselves in the mirror rather than Ashton and, and Diane, all that sort of stuff. And, and then, um, but, you know, Baldwin says, do you want to swing by the old town? And so they do, and they they check out the new shop with, you know, the, whatever that might be. And while they're in the town and they, they pass the town hall and someone calls out, John, and it's a colleague of John's, John Ashton's. And um, and we get some sheepish acting here from Baldwin who sort of has to assume to be John and kind of pretend to be him when it's obviously not him. Um, but we learn from this little moment with someone that must be an employee of John's at the town hall that, um, hey, look, you know, of course, we want to talk about the new development highway. Where do we want it to go through and all this sort of stuff? And basically, it's going to be a highway put through the town that's going to take out the house that they're living in. 
Um, and that is basically the, the kind of the inciting incident of this, that they're going to lose their home and potentially have to live in the June world. Um, so they all get back home um, and the family is rallying as soon as they're home um, before the unpossession of John and Diane to make it look like they've all enjoyed a lovely afternoon tea together, so kind of half drinking a cup, eating some scones, and leaving some crumbs around the place. And then they, they unattach from the body yeah. they've been assuming. And John and Mary, uh, John and Diane sort of get like uh, bleary and they're like, what's, what's just happened? They're like, oh, they can see they've kind of had a little cup of tea or whatnot. And so they're like, okay, nice to meet you. And they're all a bit like, yeah. sheepish and leave the place. Um, <laughs> of course, then the family, as they are, um, regroup and that we're going to lose the house. Um, Charles, Jeffrey Jones is like, let me speak to some people in New York and see what I can do about this. Adam and Barbara are like, well, we're going to go and see Juno, see if she can help. And Lydia says to Adam and Barbara, can I come? And um, she's not really, she's never seen that world, but now she's graduated, you know, maybe there's been some promise or something like that. So they go to Juno's um, and, and of course, walk into this new beautiful reception area and are seen immediately and are very impressed with the new setup. Maybe some little touches yeah. there, you know, a nice little ice water or something as well. It's really lovely. Um, <laughs> Gina's obviously not impressed with Lydia being there. Um, and Lydia and Orionis, of course, Slater and Wider exchange some yeah. and um, and receptionist Petrinas, who may have her own ideas on Orionis, is not impressed with, with that as well. But obviously, bottom line here is Juno won't help them. And um, and and basically they're like, God, this could be a last resort situation. And um, and they wonder like what's happened to Beetlejuice, you know, does Juno where he is? Juno says, well, I, I banished him. I banished him back to the model where you found him, where he should stay for keeps. He shouldn't even be thinking about him. And, um, and they're like, no, we shouldn't. He, he's not trustworthy, etc." So anyway, Adam and Barbara have basically been sleeping in the same room with the model. You know, it's kind of where they live. And it's not really, yeah. I mean, it's obviously not, I guess it's established they're able to touch things because they can still do stuff when they're ghosts. But let's assume those two have been doing everything else that are married you know, the <laughs> couple might be doing as well. So there's a moment when they return, Beetlejuice is in the model, and, and Gina has a moment, uh, Gina Barbara, you know, we always flip-flop with yeah. issues, but Gina Barbara has a moment of speaking to Beetlejuice where she just says to him, you were there the whole time? And he goes, yeah, and she goes, the whole time? And Beetlejuice's eyebrows wiggle, you know, and, um, and Beetlejuice is like, you know, you've got, you, you know, you've got to say, baby, I can help you keep this place. And like, we can't trust you, et cetera, et cetera. But they managed to, you know, he talks up a big redemption or whatever, like, you know, and says he's going to be able to help them. And they kind of, they, they figure they can contain him because they managed to get him back in there last time. So they release Beetlejuice. I mean, I put that very flippantly, Sheppy. I did wonder whether there's something to be played with, like lots of different word associations where he accidentally gets released by someone who's yeah. listened to a Beatle album or yeah. like, you know, someone wants juice or, you know, yeah. some wordplay you could do, but it doesn't really matter. They release him. I've put that it happens at breakfast time. And this is the one bit of Beetlejuice chicanery I've put in where he whirlwinds round the kitchen. And then and this could have been the trailer moment. I just didn't want to say it too soon and ruin it. Sheppings, I'm quite proud of it because I will not lie to you. This specific moment came to me this morning when I woke up. So, <laughs> um, so anyway, he whirlwinds around the kitchen and, and just sort of gives it a, hey, I'm still the ghost with the most, babe. And uh, says that to Gina. And then um, and then he spins again and says, but I'm also the ghost with the host, babe. And spins over to Delia and pecks her on the cheek. And of course, she's loving it, Catherine O'Hara, because she's kind of got a bit of a crush a bit with you. 
and then he spins again and just says uh, and spins over to Lydia and says and the ghost with the toast babe but that's <laughs> he takes and steals the triangle of toast from Lydia with his teeth and of course Lydia's just disgusted and then he goes <laughs> and also occasionally the ghost with the post babe but he spins over to the the, um, the door and he's suddenly got a little postman pat cap <laughs> and, uh, and he's opening a letter that's got like medical written on it like that and his eyes bulb and he goes Charles you should really call your doctor and then puts it down again <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway I've just put we then have two further kind of reasonably elaborate set pieces one an echo of the first where we've got the um, wealthy investors potentially from New York that might be able to derail this project um, plus John and Diane invite it over for dinner as well with Charles to discuss the idea of maybe making this more let's flip this and make it a mall rather than a bypass rather than swerving the town let's bring people to the town and um and of course the dinner turns into chaos and I thought with Beatles behaviors and of course my trailer moment now with the even bigger prawn in the face yes. the bottom line is the dinner has the opposite impact of the intention and um and John Ashton now resolves the development has to happen to lay waste to whatever this Indian burial ground or whatever must be haunted here. And so it's all going to come down to a council meeting that Charles is um, able to attend and he is able to get a slot on the agenda to have one final stab at pitching his idea of a mall. Um, but the bottom line is everything's going to be resolved at this big council meeting at the end. So a family as a group come up with a final plan. And that plan is that on the morning of the presentation, Charles pretends that his car's broken down and he signals John from across the street to see if he can come and help. When John enters the house, the plan is for Adam to repossess John so that when Charles then presents his idea to City Hall, the possessed John will definitely say, I am in favour of them all. But Barbara loses her nerve as John is walking into the house with Charles and convinces Adam it's actually the wrong thing to do. We shouldn't be playing with people this way. We should be able to convince them without playing games. And um, so basically Adam backs out of it and, um, and and they manage to catch Charles, you know, quietly in a moment in the kitchen or whatever, when, when John isn't really um, with him. And, and Charles is a bit downcast and he doesn't believe he's going to be able to do it on his own. Um, but, um, but we get an uncharacteristically nice pep talk from Delia um, and, um, and, and John leaves the house, you know, and um, they manage to get the car started, John leaves the house. And um, and then Charles also then leaves in his motor, and um, and he's sort of resolved from this nice little talk from Catherine O'Hara. And then as he's gone, um, Adam and Barbara are like, "But where's Beetlejuice?" And they realise Beetlejuice has jumped into the body of John um, while he was in the house, and he's now out loose in the world. And um, and so basically, it's it's kind of down to Lydia to hightail it to the presentation to try and warn her father off. And the fact that Beetlejuice is now John and um, we get this chaotic presentation this is where John Ashton nails his supporting actor, <laughs> uh, where he is possessed by Beetlejuice and lots of chaos like during the I'd like to think this is a slow build of like you know suddenly he's suddenly you know things are not working for him like do you know what I mean during the meeting he's trying to be all serious and listen to Charles's pitch or whatever but then like you know he can't control different <laughs> elements of it and then of course it's full scale, scale chaos Beetlejuice effectively takes off takes over and like you know things that are otherworldly happen and um, i haven't gone into anywhere near the the imaginative stuff that you have Sheppy people but man is that beat that that meeting is goes nuts lydia comes in saves the day and says you know what my father has been um, trying to say and i think what john is trying to say as well is that this town doesn't need a mall 
what we need is end of movie, cut to final scene, a gothic Disneyland. And uh, oh. they, they agree, basically, it should be an attraction to bring people to the area. But the idea is it's over the site of the house. It includes, Beetlejuice stays in the real world, um, shackled to a ghost train that's run by him. Um, and then at the site where the house specifically was so that Gina and uh, Baldwin or Adam and Barbara can still stay around. We have a full-scale model of the town that you can go in and visit as well. You know what I mean? That's kind of obviously Adam's big pet project. Um, and the film ends, you know, with high uh, high jinks and like a big you know, swell of the score. And as everyone's enjoying themselves in the, in the park, Lydia uh, draws herself a little secret door, pushes the bricks and runs down a secret corridor to go and uh, pop into the other world to see her new beau, Orionis. Um, yeah. and, um, and that's kind of basically the end. I've just got a couple of little notes, which is obviously Beauty Juice is out and stays out this time. I see it yeah. basically as a part three. We'll explain why he screwed up his job so badly with Juno, but also, of course, this resolve to be just a nice, pleasant, well, not necessarily pleasant, but a ghost train owner will last two seconds and he'll be up to his own old jinx yeah. again soon. Um, and um, yeah, I've just put, you know, for, for um, Adam and Barbara there, I fear of their losing their place, obviously reconciled. They're in exactly the same clothes I put as well. Um, and um, yeah, I think and maybe there's a nice swanky hotel as well as part of the resort that Delia is running that will make her happy as well. So um, that's it, Sheppy. That's just that's, that's lovely, lovely. Um, I like one thing, um, we both seem to have a thing about suicide in our Beetlejuice movies and also possessing people. We've yeah. both got that down, so that's nice. Um, <laughs> that is the sequel that I want to see, Jimmy. I want to see the continuing adventures. I want to see everyone, the gang's all here. I want to see Beetlejuice have some form of life, some form of art. Um, and all of that, where you leave him and, and his whole contribution to the madness of this also very compelling main story in the first place uh, was very tone perfect. I liked that. I could see it all. I was in it. Um, so that was excellent. I like that. Oh, I I'm, I'm so glad. I said again, I'm so glad you brought it back because that was lovely, just having them all there. So that was great. Um, and the, the sort of the Disney, dark Disney thing, um, brilliant as well. Do you see Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice having that as an element? Or I think that it... would be where you start and then take it from there. I don't know. Yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah. Oh, ah, very nice, Jimmy. Very nice indeed. I like Maybe it very actually, much. I know this sounds like a silly thing. I don't even need to edit it, but just to say it. I think maybe a... Um, or maybe she, this is for Lydia and Orionis, maybe she knocks on the door, like, you know, she opens that brick wall, Slater steps out into the real world somehow, I don't know, magic, but I like the idea of those two snuggling up on the Beetlejuice ghost train and like a couple of nice things and then they shoot yeah. off into it at the end is the last scene, that would be nice. But I don't know why they just popped that's in. Like, but, um, no, that's um, lovely, why not? Um, and it doesn't have to be magic, it could just be I've got the, the correct form filled out so I can do this because I've been working there for so long. I know what to do. Um, so but I, I, Juno would be furious. I like that. But yes. she's, you know, her, her, her administrative assistant. Coughing her neck. Like the place starts to get a little bit shaky, and there's suddenly <laughs> people in the waiting room. <laughs> he's out. Like, you know. um, I love that. Yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> um, wonderful, wonderful, Jimmy. One thing um, about a Beetlejuice sequel, because they've been talking about doing Beetlejuice sequels for years and years of some form or, or another. Uh, in the mid-90s, Kevin Smith was approached um, just after War Rats had been made about doing various things by Warner Brothers, and he was brought in for a meeting for a sequel to Beetlejuice. And this is 95, 96. And it said, it's going to be Beetlejuice in Hawaii. Do you want to write it? <laughs> and he was like, no. What else have you got? Said, well, we've got Superman. And they said, well, can I write Superman? So we did that instead. Um, but Beetlejuice in Hawaii was the mandate from on high. You can bet that had nothing to do with Tim Burton. Like, what a terrible sounding premise to begin yeah, with. It does like, this nice. is the film we want you to write. Uh, it's very strange. So there you go, this little oddity. <laughs> I sort of see Jack Nicholson as the Joker in his deck chair at the beach. Oh, right. Take the that, seagull. Like, yeah, it's just sort of, oh, okay. Love that Beetlejuice. <laughs> um, yeah, weird stuff. So luckily Kevin Smith went and did Superman instead, and then Tim Burton came on board that Superman project and rewrote it for someone else, and then they were going to do a totally different script, and then, of course, that never happened anyway with Nicholas Cage. But interesting stuff, interesting stuff. Um, <laughs> Jimmy, this was a joy, old son, an absolute joy. There's a final order of business, and I'm giggling about it because <laughs> I'm really excited about this one. Like, I, it's one of those ones where it doesn't matter. We haven't done enough really to start getting furious with ourselves for not thinking of these yet. But it's one of those ones where it just it genuinely had not crossed my mind until this week, and then I was like, Jesus, why have I not thought of this yet? This is, oh, I love it. One of those absolute <laughs> perfect ones that has got some synergy with our youth and when we used to sort of play this one up as well tease wow and um and it's it's just it's just there the only caveat i'm going to give it is you know i i think we should record it in a fortnight and if we do something in between great but i really want to nail this one for Ooh. us for everybody for the world <laughs> very um, excited jimmy even by that, usual standards <laughs> It's another like Jesus, an intimidating giant as well. I'm sorry about that as well. But um, I'm going back to TV and I would like a another episode, a 13th episode of Forty Towers, please, Sheppy. Jesus Christ. <laughs> well, there you go. Uh, we're called Shoulders of Giants um, and that's a very tall giant. Uh, very exciting, very exciting to do. Wow. It's kind of, uh, it's one we should definitely do. Right? Yes. Is it one that's crossed your mind before or not? No, no, never in a million years. Yeah. Um, amazing. <laughs> I'm very excited. All right, Jimmy, that's great. Brilliant. I mean, there's no way, of course, that it, you know, anything other than a horrible pale imitation, but I'm all for it. Pale imitation is my middle name. <laughs> so um, bring it on, Jimmy. I'm very excited. Nice, Shep. Nice. <clears throat> that doesn't so, mean your name is B-Piss, but let's just leave that there. I don't know. <laughs> oh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm not totally surprised, honestly. It seems this day was inevitable. But that's <laughs> all right. Um, fine. Uh, which leads us, Jimmy, how on earth do we end this epic confrontation? I'm very uh, at a loss. Any ideas? I don't know. I, I, I don't even know, Chefs. We need to sharpen this better. Oh, I don't know, man. I quite like the absolute flailing last gasp. There's no 
punch. There's only this horrible wet whimper. Uh, I don't know. We say, I'll oh, see you next time. I'll see you next time. I'll see you next time. And then we disappear. What do you think? I like that. Work. I like that. Beautiful, actually. <laughs> it's in your head. <laughs> Jimmy here. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear from you, so do feel free to reach out to us at shoulderspod.com. Uh, let us know any sequels you'd like us to do, or even your favourite sequel. Also, we'd really appreciate it if you could take a moment to leave us a review or a rating on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. I won't do two shows a night anymore.